The sermon this afternoon has to do with the first commandment of God's law, as that is explained and summarized by the church in Lord's Day 34 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Last time we dealt with the introduction to the law, this time the actual first commandment. And of course, you know that the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So we'll begin at question 93. How are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God. Trust in Him alone. Submit to Him with all humility and patience. Expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. So far, our catechism in response to the preaching will sing hymn 42 in which we sing about the temptations that our Lord overcame and in which he helps us now overcome Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, virtually every Sunday morning in the worship service, we listen to the Ten Commandments, and we compare our lives to those commandments, to that standard, to how we actually lived during the last seven days. Obeying God, doing good works according to God's commandments, it's all part and parcel of our sanctification part of showing our thankfulness to God. And every Sunday again, we are forced to conclude that despite the Holy Spirit's presence in our hearts, despite our desire to fully obey God's law, we are not able to do so perfectly. There's progress, but there's always shortcoming. By God's grace in us, we, we want to obey, there's, but there's also a part of us, our old nature, that does not want to obey, and it ends up pulling us again and again into sin. But the gospel is that as often as we reflect on that reality, on our, our failure, we just as much come to reflect on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in which He paid for all our sins, 
And that gives us comfort. Jesus bore our curse. He suffered our shame. He gave up his life in full payment for all our sins. And by that, we are assured of the complete forgiveness of all our sins every Sunday again. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we give as much thought to the other part of Jesus' work in obtaining forgiveness for us, namely the work of Jesus in obeying God's law. We know that Jesus obeyed God's law, right? Scripture teaches that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin, Hebrews 4. We also confess in Lord's Day 23 that God imputes to us, He places on our record, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ in such a way that it is as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. So, not only did Christ die on the cross for me, but He also rendered obedience for me. In other words, He kept each of God's Ten Commandments perfectly, totally. He did so on your behalf and my behalf. So as we begin to unpack the meaning of the Ten Commandments today and over the coming weeks, the Lord willing, we hope to pay attention as best we can to how it is that the Lord Jesus obeyed each of these Ten Commandments for us. We have in Scripture Jesus' earthly ministry described, and we can see Him there acting, we can hear Him speaking, and in every instance, Jesus is constantly obeying His Father's commands, and we can learn from His example. While we can never repeat all the specifics of Jesus' ministry, I mean, He had a unique calling as mediator. Nevertheless, as Christians, we walk in the footsteps of our Savior, doing what He did, loving the Father with all our heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus did that perfectly. We're going to try to learn from Him. And when it comes to the very first commandment, have no other gods before me, it quickly becomes apparent that our Savior made this, in fact, His first priority in life. And so I proclaim to you this word of God, follow Jesus in wholehearted trust of God. That's our theme, follow Jesus in wholehearted trust of God. We are to exercise trust when tempted, and we are to build up trust at all times. Now, maybe when you hear the idea that Jesus kept every one of the Ten Commandments perfectly, Maybe that doesn't resonate with you all that much because you're thinking, well, Jesus is the Son of God. He had no sin, so obedience came easily to Him. To Him, it wasn't much of a big deal. It came naturally. The very fact that Jesus never disobeyed a single commandment may not connect with us right away because we know how different we are from Jesus. Each of us is a born sinner Jesus was not. Each of us has a corrupt nature. We talked about that this morning. Jesus does not. So while we can certainly be thankful that Jesus obeyed all of God's commandments all the time, it can feel like something quite distant and unhelpful as an example. I mean, 
you and I, we struggle, right? We, we struggle all the time to do what is right. But Jesus didn't struggle, did He? Jesus was sinless, so how could He struggle with obedience? Well, brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear that Jesus did struggle. Jesus was and He remains fully, truly a human being with a human soul and a human heart with all the weaknesses of the flesh, yes, without sin, but still weakness. We should not confuse sinlessness with easy obedience. Those two things don't equal each other. We should not confuse a pure heart with a struggle-free heart. A pure heart still has things to learn. That pure heart has to learn how to obey God in every situation. Think of how, as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem to stay in the temple, His Father's house, he was there with the intention to learn more about His Father's Word from the teachers and the scribes. He thought, he expected his mom and dad to understand. But when they came looking for him, all upset, he realized that they didn't understand, so he changed his plans. The Bible says in Luke 2 that Jesus went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them, was submissive to them. Jesus learned. He didn't sin, but he, he learned. There was a struggle of sorts there. Obedience developed. Obedience had to mature. The next verse in Luke 2 says, Jesus increased in wisdom. So we need to be clear-minded that being without sin did not mean that Jesus had instant maturity in all things, that He had an instant and complete understanding of what He should be doing in every situation. He grew up and matured, just like all the kids and all of us here either are doing or have done. And part of that learning, part of that maturing involved a real struggle against temptation. A pure heart could be confronted and was confronted with a very real temptation to fall into, to indulge in sin. Very much like Adam and Eve, who themselves had pure hearts. We've been seeing that in the Garden of Eden. But they were confronted with a very real temptation to sin, and they entered into a very genuine struggle, which they lost. So Jesus, the last Adam was confronted by very, very powerful temptations to sin against which he had to struggle. Hebrews 5, verse 8, sums up Jesus' struggle this way. Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus' suffering taught Him obedience. He had to choose again and again in every second to obey His Father despite the suffering. For example, Jesus' suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was real. You can read that account for yourself at the end of the Gospels. It was painful. It was a tremendous sorrow, an agony for Him. Jesus being nailed to the cross. 
and being rejected by his father was an indescribable torture. It was an internal battle. I mean, he could have come down from the cross. He could have put a stop to all of this suffering at any given second. So he had this internal battle in him all the time against that temptation, the likes of which we really can't fathom the depth of. And in the same way, Jesus being tempted in the desert by the devil, which we read at the very beginning of his ministry, it was a profound, genuine, heart-wrenching spiritual fight that added to his suffering. So, brothers and sisters, when you think of your Savior's obedience to the law, when you think of Jesus' perfect obedience, understand that He struggled through it as much, if not more, than any of us do. And He calls us to follow Him in wholehearted obedience, wholehearted trust of the Father. Trust. A complete and exclusive trust in God. That is the basic issue of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The Catechism mentions the, the concept of trust first in answer 94. We are to trust in God alone. And then it comes back to it in answer 95. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust either instead of or in addition to the one only true God. So, trust is at the core of the first commandment. And you can think of how this commandment would have come across to the Israelites who heard this commandment first gathered around Mount Sinai. They, in their time, they knew about lots of other gods, small g, the surrounding pagan nations worshipped lots of different gods. Down in Egypt, they would have known the god Ra. In Canaan, they were soon introduced to Baal and Molech and Asherah. The Philistines had their Dagon. The gods were thought by those peoples to control certain things in life, important areas of life. People depended on the gods for things like health. They prayed to the gods for their health. They'd pray to the gods for good weather. They'd bring sacrifices so the gods would bless them with good fortune, safe travels, a large family, large flocks, success in battle, you name it. All the surrounding nations, they, they, they actually had multiple gods to help them in the multiple situations of life. But now the Lord comes to His people and He says in the very first commandment, you are not to look for help in any other place, no matter the situation you're in. Don't look to anybody else except Me. These other gods out there that you hear about, they're all fakes. They don't even exist. And if they did, I still am the true God. I am the God who loves you. I've taken you out of Egypt, remember? I'm the God who protects you, and I look after you. I will provide blessing for you. I'll provide whatever you need so you can be my people. Don't look anywhere. Look to me. Love me, and only me, just like I love you. God is a jealous God. He'll say that in the second commandment. 
Just like as, as a wife or a husband, you would be, you might be, you ought to be jealous in a good way of your spouse. You want your spouse to be devoted to you, right? If he or she's devoted to or, or attracted somewhere else, you would be jealous. That's a, that's a righteous jealousy. Well, God is like that. I want you to lean on me, he says, in all your troubles, and only me. Trust me in everything, and only me. The key issue in this first commandment is who you're going to trust. Who are you going to trust? God and his ways, his judgments, or yourself and your judgments. That's also why this commandment is the very first of the ten. It lays the foundation for all that follows. The other nine commandments, they, they flow out of this one. For if this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if He's your God, if your heart is committed to trusting Him and Him alone with all your heart, then you will give yourself to cheerful obedience to all the rest of His commandments. Because you trust Him, and He's giving these commands, so you're going to obey them because you trust Him. Now, it's one thing to express faith or trust when life is just rolling along smoothly. I trust God, things are going well. That's one thing. It's another thing to do so when life falls off the tracks, when the wheels fall off the cart you're riding, when life becomes hard, when you're maybe under the attack of the evil one, when you are bombarded by temptation, when your circumstances are tough, and it doesn't look like God is interested in you all that much. That's another thing, isn't it? Well, it's exactly at that moment when all looks, it looks like God has maybe abandoned you, that you have to there in that moment exercise trust in Him. You have to actively believe. You have to put that muscle of faith to work and believe He is my God. He does love me. He did give His Son for me. He does mean to do me good. He's promised me this and He's promised me that. He will come through one way or the other. I'm going to trust. Don't see it right now. I'm going to trust. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing in the wilderness as we read about that in Matthew. It's a well-known story. Right after Jesus was baptized, right at the start of his earthly ministry, God leads him out into the desert for a period of temptation by the devil. It's a time of testing for the last Adam. Similar to that of the first Adam, there's a parallel, only Jesus is not placed in optimum circumstances. He's not in a garden. He's not given everything he could possibly need like Adam and Eve were. There's no food in the desert. There's no company in the desert. There's no friend. There's certainly no spouse, no support. 
He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine? How long can you go without food? Many of us in the month of January, this time of the year, we try diets or we try to get better eating habits after the excesses of the holidays. Most of us find that pretty hard, right, to keep up. Some of us may have done some intermittent fasting. Some of us may have gone a few days fasting. But this is other level. I mean, 40 days, 40 nights. What kind of intense struggle did Jesus go through in those weeks? What kind of physical hardship to go without nourishment for one month and ten days? I mean, Jesus must have been skin and bones by the end, right? Aching, famished, exhausted, lonely, weak as all get out, and right then the tempter shows up. Isn't that just like him? Isn't that how the devil loves to work? Catch us when we're weakest, when we are down and out. And what's the first temptation that Satan throws at Jesus? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Ouch. It's a double whammy, isn't it? I mean, there's the food temptation, but there's also Jesus' identity. Remember in the passage about the baptism, and Satan evidently was listening, God the Father spoke a voice, His voice from heaven, and He had said at, at His baptism, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And now 40 days later, after the Son has been in the wilderness, wasting away for weeks, emaciated and weak, the devil questions that assertion. Are you serious? You, the Son of God, the beloved of the Father? Look at you. Skinny as a rake. 40 days and 40 nights without food? Would God let His only Son suffer like that if you are the Son of God? You really think God loves you, Jesus? Does a loving God send His Son out into the scorching desert with no supplies for weeks and weeks? It's the sort of question any of us could have in the midst of our troubles and pain. Does a loving God put His adopted child through this kind of misery? Does a good God really allow evil like this in this world? And, and why would God allow wickedness and hardship and strife to, to occur in His own children's lives? Does any of this make sense? Can I really believe in? Can I really trust this God? That's the issue underneath this command, isn't it? Or underneath this temptation, isn't it? Can I really trust this God? Well, beloved, you can. You can now. Because your Savior, Jesus, did it first. Follow Him. 
in his wholehearted trust of God. For what did Jesus say in response to the devil's temptation? He turns to Scripture. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how you do it. That's exercising trust when all the evidence around you points away from trusting God. I'm in a desert without any companions. I've been left out here for almost six weeks. I've received no food or sustenance for 40 days and nights. My body is hanging on by a thread. I'm as weak as water. But despite how everything looks, I trust my God. He's my Father. I trust Him. My God said it in Scripture long ago. He said that His people are to live not just by bread, but by what God said. It's He who sent me into this desert to be tempted and to fast, and so it will be by His Word that I will receive food and strength. I'm hanging on to my Father. Jesus was tempted hard, and every ounce of His body strained for food. We can be sure of that. Yet He leaned into His Father's promise. And he waited upon the Lord. Let us do the same, beloved. By the strength of the Holy Spirit, the very same Spirit who lived in Jesus, descended upon him at his baptism, and brought him out into the wilderness, let us, in the strength of his Spirit, lean upon the Father's promises at all times, but especially in the day of trouble. He promised that to you at your baptism. He promised to provide you with all good and avert all evil, or if He were to send evil into your life, to use it, to turn it for your benefit. Trust in that. When you then are faced with temptations, powerful as they may be, whether it's to indulge in a certain lustful appetite, be it a sexual one or a one to do with alcohol or drugs or video gaming or binging on this or binging on that, where part of you wants to go down that road and escape into another world for a while, maybe some kind of fantasy world where everything feels good and looks good, when you're at that precipice, go back to the Word of the Lord. Remind yourself there that there is no lasting satisfaction or peace or joy outside of a relationship with your God. Like Jesus could have enjoyed temporary pleasures and riches of the world by bowing down to Satan. That's one of the other temptations. But Jesus recalled God's word that we are to worship only the Lord our covenant God. That is the only meaningful way to live. To chase after happiness by, by indulging in sin, it's like a dog chasing its tail. Even if that dog grabs hold of its tail, it's the kind of thing that literally hurts you in the end. We wrestle sometimes very hard with temptation to let go, to abandon trust in God, and to trust other things to provide happiness. 
And we have many, many failures in this, don't we? Many falls. But beloved, understand that your Savior and mine, He resisted every temptation against this first commandment. He stayed loyal to the Father in our stead. Make sure that you put your trust in that too. Your sin and my sin against this first commandment, all our repeated flops despite best efforts, will not count against us as we look to Jesus and put our trust in Him and in His perfect obedience which took away uh, took him all the way to the cross. And the more we look to Christ, the more we can build up our trust, not just in the hour of temptation, not in the, just in the time of struggle, but at all times in our lives. You know, when we find ourselves in those bleak times or we anticipate those bleaker times, of temptation and attack, we can help ourselves get ready by preparing in the time when we're not under attack. That's what soldiers do, right? There are times as a soldier when you are under enemy fire and all you can do is find a foxhole, kind of take cover and do what you can to survive. Then all your training kicks in in that moment and you go to work defending yourself in that foxhole. And we are in a spiritual warfare. We saw that this morning. Genesis 3.15 starts it. Ephesians 6, you can read more about it. Might be a good text to read as a family today. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Satan wants us. He's after us. His demons are after us. His followers in the world are after Christians. They want to break down the kingdom of God. As a spiritual soldier, then, we have to train ourselves. How do we do that? How do we get ready for the, the moment of attack? Well, we have to use the methods that God has provided. What's your training plan? You know, Jesus, He went from the hour of baptism, and that was a high moment, right? That was a beautiful moment in His ministry, very affirming public declaration from heaven. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He would have been feeling strong and powerful. He went from that only days later to the very low moment of being mercilessly attacked by Satan. But Jesus was ready. He was prepared by knowing God's Word cold. Something he learned, you'll recall, as a child. He went to the temple even, but he must have learned it from his parents. He must have learned it in the synagogue in Nazareth. He grew in knowledge. He grew in understanding. He grew in wisdom. Are you doing the same, beloved? How are you getting yourself ready for the enemy attacks which will absolutely come? I mean, you've experienced them already, I'm sure, and they will come again. The Catechism hints at this need when it comes to the 
this first and basic commandment in answer 94. First, that I rightly come to know the only true God. We have to know this God. How can you know Him? This is how. This is how. Read the Bible. Study God's Word to us. Isn't that what Jesus did? He didn't just know the Word lightly either, did He? He certainly memorized Scripture, but it wasn't a surface knowledge. He plunged into that Word. He knew it inside and out. Three times when defending against the devil, he quotes Scripture. Do you know what Scripture he quotes? You know what book of the Bible he quotes? It's in the footnote there in your Bible. He quotes the book of Deuteronomy three times. Could you, could I quote the book of Deuteronomy three times to ward off a temptation? Later into the Sadducees, uh, who didn't believe in the resurrection, Jesus quotes from the burning bush incident, Exodus 3. He quotes from that incident to show that God's people remain alive after death. I mean, it's an, a, it's an amazing account how Jesus uses Scripture to, to teach the, the Sadducees. Jesus knew the depth of Scripture. He deeply knew the God of Scripture for that reason. And because of all of that, temptation's hour did lose its power for him. No matter how Satan tried and all that he threw at Jesus and inferred about God or about the present situation, Jesus was not fooled. He had a crystal clear understanding of who his God was, what he had said in Scripture, and what he could expect from him as his son. And so Christ, our Savior, he stood firm under fire, obeying that first commandment again and again and again. Let's follow our Savior in this. We won't be able to do it sinlessly, no, but we may be able to do it with progress. Let's not doubt that. But we do have to put the work in. Study the Scriptures. Pray for wisdom and enlightenment to know God better. And your knowledge of the Lord, it will surely grow. The Spirit will grant that to you. The depth will come. Study the Scriptures on your own personally. Study it as a couple, a married couple. Study it as a family. Be busy wherever you can in the church. We've got D groups. We've got prayer groups. We've got Bible study groups. Uh, Wednesdays and Thursdays. You can get plugged in if you're not already. Come and study so that your love for God matures and your trust of the Lord will take off. The way to make sure that you have no other gods in your life, that you trust in no other person or thing, is to come to such an understanding of the great wonder and majesty of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that you cannot possibly imagine and trusting your life into any other hands but His. That's how Jesus walked this earth. 
in all of his troubles, and the Father never let him down. Jesus did that for us. Now as his followers and filled with his Spirit, we may take up the cross and follow Christ Jesus in his footsteps, and we may know that he will never let us down. Amen.